chapter 20. Numbers 20. If you're wondering, no, we didn't fire Josiah. He's on vacation. So I'm sliding into the gap there. And, and thank you, Tom and Lisa, for helping me out tonight. I appreciated that. It was really sweet. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1, tells us, Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. We realize now, we know, talked about this Sunday, that's the first month of the 40th year. So they've now come to the end of the 40-year journey from Egypt all the way to the Promised Land, 38 years from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land and the time of God leading them in the wilderness. And we're told the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. Fathers, we continue in this study. I'm excited because, Lord, I realize we, we realize now the children of Israel are going to continue as well, that the wilderness will start to disappear behind them as the land looms large and wonderfully in front of them, along with the challenges of getting there. And Lord, how like our lives, how like our lives, this, this wilderness, this 2,000-year stretch of time, Lord Jesus, since you ascended back to the Father, has been a wilderness journey for your children, for those born again, for followers. And, and yet, Lord, we have this, just this growing sense that the wilderness is more and more behind and the kingdom looms large ahead of us. But we're still journeying. We still have some battles to fight. There are still giants in them, our hills. And Father, I pray in our lives that as we face the challenges and struggles and the giants and the difficulties, oh Lord, lead us like a shepherd lead us onward and upward into your land, into the kingdom. And whatever you need to do between now and that glorious day, however long it may be, hours, days, months, even years, Lord, if it should be, we just pray, keep our eyes on you. Help us to follow after you. Call our names, Lord, and give us ears to hear. And we pray tonight, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us in Jesus' name, amen. So Numbers 20, we already kind of made a little four-way, foray into it with Moses striking out. You know that story. If you were here Sunday, if you weren't, that's what I said. Go back and listen 40 minutes, five seconds or so into the, into the teaching on, on uh, YouTube. But Numbers 20 brings us to a number of gravestones. Shared this on Sunday as well. First Miriam in the first month of the 40th year, and then at the end of the chapter, we're five months into the 40th year, and Aaron will die as well. And as we talked about, also, finally, at the end of this same 40th year, Moses will also die, though we won't come to that until the end of Deuteronomy. But Micah chapter 6, verse 4, I repeat to you all, indeed, the Lord says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And I love that the last mention of Miriam in the Bible is not when she got leprosy because she was being cantankerous. It's as though God just let that one go and puts her in the company of Moses and Aaron, her brothers, as one of the three great leaders of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. It's a sweet honor that the Lord gives to Miriam. I told you Sunday also, Mary's namesake, Jesus' earthly mother in Hebrew, Miriam. And so she's the namesake of 
the mother of Mashiach, Messiah. But in this sweet honor, understand that not one of these three great leaders will go into the land. They will all join the first generation of the Exodus in death. Only two of that entire generation will go into the promised land, Joshua and Mad Dog, right? <laughs> Caleb. Caleb means dog in, in Hebrew, Kalev. And, and it's, so I call him Mad Dog because he's a crazy guy. He just wants to fight giants. That's all he wants to do. It's awesome. But they will lead the people in. They will go in because they have faith, no one else. Even Moses and Aaron and Miriam at different points lose faith and will die in the wilderness. But chapter 20, though it brings us to those gravestones, it also brings us to a great milestone, and that is after 38 years in the wilderness, they have finally returned. The Israelites now finally gather again at Kadesh Barnea. You remember what Kadesh Barnea means, Bible students? Holy, Kadesh is holy, Barnea is desert of the fugitive. Now, I didn't expect you to just remember that off the top of your head. I have it in my notes, that's how I know. The holy desert of the fugitive is what Kadesh Barnea means. It's a great name. It's right there on the southernmost border of the promised land. You come out of Kadesh and you actually enter the southern part of Israel, what they call the Negev, which means the southernmost. And then from the Negev, if you just continued on north, you'd eventually come to Hebron. And, and it, well, before that, actually, Beersheba, and then Hebron, and then you're on up into the land, Jerusalem, and all the rest. So they're right there on the very edge of the land. Just like their fathers, these children of Israel contended with Moses and Aaron. That's the story that the first part of the chapter tells. They were tired. They were thirsty. They're grumpy. They needed to be watered. So God tells Moses, get the rod. And it's not get the rod because, you know, spoil the rod, spoil the child. It's get the rod so they know where the, the miracle's coming from. Speak to the rock, Moses, and water the people. Well, Moses misrepresents God. You, you know the story. And he gets all angry and all up in their faces, calls them, you know, morons or the like, you know, says you rebels and strikes the rock and, and that's it. He presents a God angry and vengeful and that's not the heart of the Father. You need to remember that. The heart of the Father is to water his people. And so even though Moses strikes the rock in anger, water flows. He didn't do it God's way, but God's concerned for his people. The water flows. They're taken care of. And verse 13 tells us these were the waters of Meribah. By the way, it's the same name that we saw back in Exodus 17 in another location. Because Meribah means contention. The people contended, first generation of Israel contended with Moses and Aaron and God in Exodus 17. Here they're contending with Moses again in Numbers 20, so it's called Meribah again, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord. And watch this, he proved himself holy, Kodesh, among them at Kadesh. Kodesh at Kadesh. Holy at this holy place on the edge of the promised land. Now, with all that behind us, we're right there on the southernmost border, as I said. All you got to do is travel straight up through the Negev. Just, man, shoot a line straight north, and you are in the promised land. Why not just step right in? Because if your Bible's open in front of you, you know there's still several chapters and numbers to go. And then the entire book of Deuteronomy. So why not just go right into the land? 
if you know the topography, why, if you know the story, do they have to cross the Jordan River? See, the Jordan River's not in the south. Jordan River's not in the Negev. Jordan River's north of the Dead Sea. It spills into the Dead Sea. And the waters all kind of die and get salty there. Jordan River's way up. Why do they have to cross the Jordan River if they're right at Kadesh? On the border of the promised land. Just go straight up into the hill country of the Negev and you're there. Well, watch this, verse 14. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. See, word traveled then just as it does now. You know all the hardship. We've been out here for 38 years in the wilderness. You're aware of that. You know, word has gotten to you that our fathers, verse 15, went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice. He sent an angel. Who's that angel? Yeah, pre-incarnate Jesus, I'm convinced. He sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory, Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. We don't want any trouble. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. It reminds me of the Black Knight in Monty Python. None shall pass. <laughs> Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we'll go up by the highway. And if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I'll pay its price. Let, only me, let me only pass through on feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. None shall pass. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now, when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. My friends, they ended up going 50 miles out of the way. From Kadesh, they would circle back toward the Red Sea, back south, and then circle around, from my vantage point, so from yours, from the, uh, above the Red Sea, they go back toward the Red Sea, and then back down and around and up to Mount Hor. 50-mile journey on foot, Two and a half, maybe three million people. Major drag. They take this southeastern circuitous route, and, and there's, there's something going on here you need to sense because it has immediate application to last week. Anti-Semitism. This is early onset anti-Semitism in the treatment of Israel, understand this, by their Semitic relatives. You see, there was Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham went south. Japheth went west. Shem populated the Middle East, the Shemitic or Semitic people. Arabs and Jews are both Semitic, my friends. But today, it has shifted to where you say anti-Semitism. You know what we're talking about. You're talking about anti-Jew, anti-Israel. And by the way, you can't be anti-the country of Israel and not be anti-Semitic. It's the same thing because the country and the people and the word 
and their God, our God, is all interconnected. And there, by the way, there's a fantastic uh, brief, about six minute long teaching on this. And I would encourage you to find it. It's, uh, if you go to PragerU, Dennis Prager does a six minute deal on why is the land so important? And how can you, how can you say, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm just anti-Zion? If you're anti-Zion, you're anti-Semitic. And he explains why, and, and he explains it beautifully. I, I, I'll leave that to you, but I encourage you, go six minutes of your time tonight, go home and watch that on YouTube. It's, it's excellent, just the way he presents it. But here we have, for, for the, well, not for the first time, but we see this explosion of anti-Semitism. Why? Well, their relatives, which is amazing. Remember, the Shemitic, so Arab and Jew alike have that Shemitic background. The Edomites are relatives of who? Esau. That's it. Jacob and Esau. The Edomites are the cousins of Israel. Israel comes up to the southernmost border of the promised land and cousins, hey, hey, it's been 400 years, time for a potluck or a family reunion or something, man. And the Edomites are like, no way, you're not coming here. The Edomites lived in that southern Negev region. They also lived in what or ended up in the region that would be southern Jordan today. Edom, southern Jordan, Moab, middle of Jordan, and Ammon, as in Ammon, Jordan, the northern part of Jordan. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. Remember that because we're going to see a lot of these people as the Israelites are just trying to make their way back to the land that belonged to their forefathers promised by God. But watch this. If, if you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, flip over to Malachi, last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Malachi, should I say it? The Italian prophet, right? Malachi? Yeah, turn over there. Malachi, or Malachi, chapter 1. And listen to this, because you've got this really bizarre situation. What happened last week with Hamas and, and those Arabs who were incited against Israel and, and the Palestinians. Palestinians are not, we've said so many times, they're not Palestinians. I mean, they are now. At this point, that's, that's the national identity of this people, but they're not Palestinian. The Philistines, they're not descendants of Philistines. The Philistines were, you know, European came from the island of Crete and sailed across onto the border or the, the, um, the side of Israel in the Mediterranean there. They're not Philistines. They're not related to the Philistines. The Palestinians are Arabic. The Palestinians have more relationship <laughs> to Israel than they have to, Philist to Philistia, which is remarkable. It, this has been a family feud now for 3,500 years. This has been a broiling, boiling hatred that goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. And you can track it through the Bible. And honestly, it starts to make sense of what we are seeing in the Middle East today. The Arab-Israeli conflict goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. Well, listen to what God says. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malchi, I have loved you. I have loved you. Listen, that's in the perfect tense. So you could easily translate it, I have loved you, I love you, I will love you. See, God's love is perfect tense. 
It is past, present, present, and future. It is always because he's always. Like he's I am, his love is I am. His love is immediate and is present. And that's what he's saying to Israel. I have loved you. I love you. I will always love you. That's the expression. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation. Have you been to southern Jordan? It's a desolation, my friends, exactly as described. I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now this is fascinating prophecy and it's hard to hear. God with perfect tense love says, Israel, I love you. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I've hated. How? How can a loving God hate Jacob's brother? How can the word hate even be applied here? Understand this. Everything is perfect tense with I am. And by the way, when he says, Esau, I have hated, it's perfect tense. I hated him, I hate him, I will hate him. So in case you were hoping that we'd lighten up a little bit on the hate of God, maybe explain it away. Oh no, it's hate, big time, with a capital H-A-T-E. Then now and forever the Lord says, I have hated Edom. How do we figure that one out? Well, if everything is perfect tense with I am, then I am knows the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything, right? You with me? Which means he knows the behavior of all people then, now, and forever. Which means he knows what you're going to do next week and next year. It means with foreknowledge, it doesn't mean God forces you to do anything. We all have free will. Absolutely, we make our own choices, but he knows everything. And he's always there in perfect tense. And he sees everything as if at once. So he knows what choices you're going to make. He knows how many of you are going to sign up for Israel. He does. He knows if John's going to sign up and sneak away to Gaza just for a kick and a half on a day that he has off. Trust me, John would do it. He knows what's going to take place. He knew what would happen with Israel. He knew Israel before. He knew Israel now. He knows Israel to come and says, I've loved you because he knows what's going to take place with this people. He knows the same thing with Edom. God isn't limited to a place on history's curb, as it were. Think about the parade of history. I've used this example before, and we sit on the curb, and here come the floats one at a time as time marches by. God's in the Goodyear blimp watching the whole thing happen at once. It's instantaneous. So he knows when that float is going to crash onto the sidewalk two blocks down. He's aware of all these things, and his judgments, the Bible is clear, are righteous and true. He sees it all at once immediately based on the big picture of all time. And so Paul explains, he says in Romans 9, 13, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? <laughs> May it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So you got to put this all into the mix. The merciful, all-loving God knows everything and responds based on what he knows of us. The Edomites proved themselves to be cruel, ruthless, godless, and anti-Semitic. Set against Israel. All the way back here, we see it happening. And this would play out throughout history, and it still happens today. And I'm not, listen, please hear me, I'm not throwing all Arabs into that camp. I'm not saying if you're Arab, you're in trouble. No. I have good Christian brothers and sisters who are Arabs. There are Israeli Arabs, by the way, who are citizens of the nation of Israel. Full citizenship, full rights, and they're Arabic. That's okay. That's wonderful. And those who have given their lives to Jesus, all the better. But there are those set against God's people. And if you set yourself against God's people, I remind you again, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, those who bless you, I will bless, he says to Abraham, and those who curse you, I will curse. That is how God can love, his, can love Jacob and hate Esau. Esau I've hated. Why? Because Esau hated the people of God. And it's still in play today. What do you mean? Read Obadiah. We don't have time for it. Avajah in the Hebrew. That one chapter little book. It's a prophetic indictment of the Edomites. Guess what? Not historically. Prophetically. It's a one chapter prophetic indictment of the people of Edom yet to come. It is a judgment that has not yet happened. It's a remarkable little book. Let me just read you one verse out of Ovadia, Obadiah. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Bible students, do you know what the word violence is in that sentence in Hebrew? Hamas. Hamas. Because of violence. Hamas in Arabic, it's an acronym for the Islamic uh, resistant movement. But in Hebrew, Hamas is violence. <laughs> it's amazing. They wronged Israel 3,500 years ago when they just wanted to come through their land. We won't touch a thing. We'll stay on the king's highway. We'll just march straight, you know, single file if we have to, straight on up and not have a problem. And the Edomites, their cousins, their family said, no way. We'll have nothing to do with you. And there would be problems for Israel ongoing. And they're still set against Israel today. So back in Numbers chapter 20, they say, nope, can't do it. You're not coming through. We're not going to allow it. So verse 23, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor. So now they've traveled around from Kadesh. Remember I said down, back around and up to Mount Hor. We're not exactly sure where Mount Hor is. There are a couple of different options, but it's not even worth debating. It was there on the way. And Mount Hor, the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have given the sons of Israel because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah which tells us that Aaron and, and Moses were in league together. It tells us that Moses didn't just go off all half cocked. When Moses struck the rock he and Aaron were in full agreement that the people needed a little discipline. So perhaps they had a little, you know, tete-a-tete. They had a little private conversation. And the Lord said, take the rod, speak to the rock. And Moses and Aaron went to get the rod, and they're talking. These people need more than just speaking. They need spanking. 
And so they went off. Aaron's complicit. He is so complicit at heart that God says, you're not going in either. And so you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah, the waters of contention. Verse 25, take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer. It's called divestiture where you divest someone of their mantle, of their, of their garb, of his high priestly garments here. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Man. That sounds awfully clinical, you know? I mean, there's not a whole lot of emotion there. They went up, they stripped him, they, you know, buried him and came back down. I mean, it's just very black and white, very done, and let's move on. But they didn't just move on. Verse 29, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Aaron was beloved. Aaron had such a unique, important position among the people of Israel, the first of their lineage of high priests, the Aaronite or the Aaronic priesthood. He was the first guy. The people loved Aaron, and now, now they weep for him. The Bible says 30 days. You know, there are times I wish that we did it that way. That when someone died, we didn't just see how quick we could get the funeral over with and on back to life. You know, move through it quickly. Uh, that's the American way. But this, this picture of, of Aaron gathered to his people, a few things I want to I talk to you about. First of all, Aaron being gathered to his people reminds me, reminds us of the eternality of death. That God, listen, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? Aaron died because of his rebellion. He would not go into the promised land, so there's punishment there. And yet, in his death, what happens? He's gathered to his people. That speaks of he's going where his fathers went. He's going to be with them. There is an eternality. There is life after death. And he lives, Aaron lives, he rebelled, punished. He's going to die. He's not going to go into the promised land. But he lives because of his faith in the one true God, the God of the living. And so it's an eternal reminder and they knew this all the way back early on. Abraham understood this. In fact, Abraham obviously believed in resurrection. That's why he bought his burial cave where he did, so he could walk out of the cave right into the promised land when he resurrects on the day of that resurrection. He just knew it. Abraham believed in resurrection, which is why he almost killed Isaac. He knew that God could raise him from the dead, so all right, you want me to kill him? I'll kill him. God will bring him back. <laughs> Simple, clear faith that the idea of resurrection is not a new one with Christianity. I mean, it goes way, way back. So Aaron is gathered to his people. He says it twice. And note this also, again, they mourned him for 30 days. Middle Eastern mourning, not a quiet thing. We are. We go into a funeral home. Shh. You know, there might be some soft music playing. The lights are not bright. They're, they're just kind of dim. You shuffle in there. I remember going to my grandmother's Memorial, actually, to the viewing. Went to the viewing. Um, she died in her sleep peacefully, beautifully. It was wonderful for her. Sad for us, 94 years old. 
And this was back in 99, right? It was right after we moved up here. And I remember going into the, the funeral home, and, and there she was in the casket, and I'm walking around, and it's real quiet. My mom comes up to me, and she goes, Rick, can I just ask you a question? Yeah, Mom, what's up? Why are you wearing Uggs? I have my Uggs on, you know? My, my, if you know what I'm talking about, Uggs are like Southern California slipper shoes. They were comfortable. I'm wearing my Uggs. I had on my nice jeans, you know? People are walking around in suits. I'm there in my Uggs. What are you wearing your Uggs for? And I'm like, Grandma would have wanted me to. But I digress. It, it, you know, you go into these places quiet and somber and, you know, we don't make a lot of noise. Middle East, whoa, the weeping and the mourning. And if you've seen them carrying, especially, I mean, seen about, uh, among the Arabic people, man, they're carrying that body right down the middle of the street, shouting and jumping up and down and dust flying. You're like, that's crazy. Hey, you know what? They're getting the sorrow out. We have a hard time with that in America. We hold on to our sorrow as long as possible. We move through the loss. We go to the funeral. We get it done. We, we, and, and it's crazy. And if you've ever done this, you know what I'm talking about. We'll have three or four days of insanity trying to get everything done and, and cross all our T's and dot our I's and make sure everything is done. And we have the memorial service. Yeah, and get the food. And that's great. <laughs> great memories of the loss. And then we're done. And we're moving on. And those close to those who have gone on, those who have passed away, are left going, I'm not done. So in America, now we start to do grief counseling and, and grief support groups and things because we don't deal with this. 30 days. They sat there for a month and mourned Aaron. They got the grief out. It's not a bad idea. By the way, I, I just I want to throw this out to you, and this is something that I still work on because I'm not the greatest when it comes to compassion. Cheryl will tell you that. <laughs> but when we go to a funeral of a brother or sister in our fellowship say the funeral's on a Saturday by Monday we're back to life as usual not much has changed for us but how about those close to the one lost we'll go two or three months and the one close to those lost will still be hurting we'll be like why come on you know time to get on with life hey that's not fair we need to be able to mourn longer and give people time because again the American style is we rush through it so quickly and I think the Middle Eastern style may have something. Let's mourn. Let's get the grief out. Let's deal with it. Let's take the time we need to. Well, they do for Aaron for 30 days. The Bible says, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance. Both are necessary. And you know what? To mourn the loss of a Christian brother or sister is not to deny the faith of where they are. It's to feel the loss. That's a good thing. That's an important thing. But by faith, even in ancient days, this was known. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David wrote that. And then about Jesus, prophetically he said, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus was only three days in the tomb, in and out. I mean, he borrowed it for a weekend. He says, Psalm 16, verse 11, David writes, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence. Listen, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That is the biblical view of death. That there are 
pleasures. There is fullness of joy. That's why Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Listen carefully. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, that does not mean soul sleep. What that means is when you die, your spirit, your body looks asleep, which is why Paul uses sleep as the euphemism for death. The, my grandmother at the viewing looked sweet and peaceful and sound asleep. The body, her spirit wasn't there. Where was her spirit? Sleeping somewhere else? No, her spirit was home with the Lord. And that's the promise, which is why Paul says, so we know that in that moment, called the rapture of the church, because he goes on to describe it, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul goes on to say, the dead in Christ then will rise. Well, wait a minute, the dead of Christ, the rise? But God brings with him those who have fallen asleep? Yeah, the spirits who have gone home to be with the Lord. The true self, the true person is with Jesus. Bodies in the ground or cremated or whatever. God knows where the molecules are. And those rise, the dead in Christ, the necros, the corpse in Christ rises. God brings with him those who have fallen asleep and instantly glorified. So you got to do it that way for those who have died in Christ. For those alive in Christ, for those alive in Christ at the time of the rapture, we just, we just go and we are glorified. But the dead in Christ rise first, which offers this interesting conundrum. Would it be better to be dead in Christ or alive in Christ? Because if I'm the dead in Christ, I get to go first. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of torn on that one. But here's the thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage. I say we prefer rather to be absent from the body and where? At home with the Lord. Because that's what happens when a person dies. And so there is room in here for the weeping and the laughter, for the mourning and the dancing, for the praise and the hope and the faith in life eternal. And so as we look at this description of, of Aaron's death, it's just, again, I said clinical. The divestiture of his priestly mantle. This just kind of happens. They go up, done, deal, come back, and then they mourn. But listen, it reminds me of something else too. Not only the eternality of life, and not only that we need to have time to mourn, but it also reminds me <laughs> I'm expendable. Jerry Seinfeld used to say the reason why men always wear tuxedos at a wedding is if something happens to the groom, the best man can just slide over one spot and they just keep going. I'm expendable. And that's not to say I'm unimportant or insignificant. Hey, we're all expendable. When our calling is over, guess what? Someone else is going to slide right into place and do just fine. Someone else will put on the robe, the mantle. In this case, it's Eliezer, his son, is now the new high priest. The high priesthood doesn't stop because Moses is gone. Oh, how are we going to find some Eliezer? Well, that was easy. It always is. I left my first youth ministry thinking they will never find anyone as excellent or anyone who could do the job that I was doing. Two weeks later, they had a new guy. The group grew. I was like, whatever. <laughs> I am expendable. 
and you are expendable. It's a right attitude. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you, but he loves you. That's the great news. You're expendable, but God's got you in this place because he wants you to be part of the, part of the thing. He, he wants to involve you. He invites us in. He doesn't require my service. He just invites me to his. So I can serve him. Romans 8, 28, we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called how? According to his purpose. I'm called for him, not for me. If I'm called for me, I'm going to get in the way. It's for him. For those he foreknew, and I was talking about that before, he knows ahead because he's I am. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. And I love that. He knew you would choose him, so he predestined you to choose him. Isn't that great? That is, he knows that you've made the choice. If you have the choice to follow Jesus, so he says, cool, because I know you're going to make that choice, I'm going to support you in that. I'm going to strengthen you in that. You're going to walk in it. You're, you're now predestined. And he goes on and says, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, remember, because he foreknew, he predestined, he also called, and these he called, he justified, and these he justified, he also glorified. I'm expendable, and yet look at what he's offering. So when I go, no problem. God's got someone else in mind. Some of you know this, that when the bridge started 18 years ago, so he called me to start this fellowship, and I was just dumb enough to say yes. I don't mean that towards you all at all. But I was just like, okay, all right. Two years prior, another pastor named Rick was called to start a fellowship right here and call it the bridge. And he declined and did something else. Expendable. <laughs> God's like, okay, you're not going to do it? I'll call another Rick. Call me. And if something happens to me, guess what? He's just going to slide Jake right into place, and we'll just keep going. Okay? I know that what, that's what Jake's waiting around for anyway. <laughs> we don't put our faith in ourselves. We don't put our faith in humanity. We don't put our faith in the errands or the personalities or the celebrities. We are all servants of the Lord. We are all expendable, but we are also all loved and called to eternal glory. So the Hebrew pastor says, Hebrews 7.23, the former priests on the one hand exist in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. We got a priest down. That's okay. Slide in. Got it covered. And like the priests of Israel, like Aaron himself, we will serve God until our time's up. And then he's got someone else in mind and you just get to go home. Hebrews 7.24 tells us this, however, but Jesus... On the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you tonight. If you ever feel like no one's paying attention to you, no one's listening to you, no one knows what this is interceding for you right now. That's what he does. He always lives to make intercession his people. You're being prayed for by Jesus. Wow. And Jesus Christ is the same right. So he's always the same. He's always doing the same thing. He is interceding. He's there for you and he remains the high priest of our confession forever. No one's going to strip him of that mantle. But on Mount Hor 
Aaron now dies, the congregation weeps, they mourn for him, and they prepare to continue on, but before they can even break camp, attack. Chapter 21, verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Atharim, then he fought against Israel and he took some of them captive. Israel has left Mount Hor and they're, they're starting to head the way of Atharim. Atharim can either mean the mountain pass or it can also mean, and note this, the way of the spies. So perhaps this is the journey, the circuitous route that the spies took. Or perhaps it's a, a, a channel through the wilderness or through the mountain pass that spied out. So the king knew. Either way, they go by way of the Atharim, verse 2. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Notice that Israel speaking in the first person as one person. That's the kind of unity God likes. Verse 3, the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Watch this. Thus, the name of the place was called Hormah. Does that sound familiar? All you got to do is trail back 38 years to Numbers 14 when the first generation of Israel who had failed by faith to go into the promised land, they said, we can't do it. And God said, fine, then you're going to journey here for 38 years. The next morning they go, all right, we'll go fight. And without God's blessing, without God's help, they force the fight, they go up and they get wiped out all the way back to a place called Hormah. Hormah means devoted to destruction. If you fight your way, you will be devoted to your own destruction. But if you fight God's way, as they're doing here, they make a vow to the Lord. Guess who was devoted to destruction? The enemy. The enemy. And so they will go down. Same place Israel forced to fight. Now this generation owns these armies and wipes them out. Their fight, their fight is by faith. That's, by the way, the only way to fight. You don't want to fight in the flesh, and you don't want to be headstrong and think, I can handle it, I can do it, I got this. Fight by faith, by trusting in the Lord God. And the challenge is that fighting by faith looks totally different than fighting in the flesh. And you'll know the difference, because if you're fighting in the flesh, you're stressed out, you're worried, there's no peace, you're angry, you're intense, you're sweating, trying to make this how I'm going to... But if you're fighting in the spirit, there's peace. You can be in the midst of warfare and know God's got you. It's a very different experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. How do you fight God's way? You do the right thing. You do the righteous thing. You do the holy thing, which by the way starts, as Jesus said, by loving each other as I have loved you. It's a completely different way to fight. Three, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. How does that work? I encourage you, I'm not going to do it right now. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Compare the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. That's the difference in how you fight. The fruit of the Spirit, there's our weapons of warfare. That's what our warfare for the Lord looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
That's how we fight. Completely different as opposed to all the deeds of the flesh, and I won't even go into that list. Well, speaking the word, uh, or speaking of the word of truth, watch this, verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Remember that 50-mile trek now? And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. No water? Didn't the rock show just take place? They forget that, the water from the rock that God provided, and and by the way, had been for 40 years. No water. Oh, there's no water. Well, okay, he knows how to bring water. How about no food? No food! The word food, note this in your Bibles, lechem, it's bread. There's no bread. They had bread. But listen how they describe it. We loathe this miserable bread. Manna. The manna in the wilderness and the children of the children of Israel had come to hate it. They just hated it. Exodus 16.31 tells us the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. I'm sorry, my friends, but wafers with honey, I'm in. I am in. That sounds great. It's like, it's like the original Krispy Kreme. But, but unlike Krispy Kreme, this manna's healthy. Yes, yes. It's Nehemiah chapter 9. We were talking about this earlier today. In Nehemiah chapter 9, it tells us specifically that God led them through the wilderness and their clothes didn't wear out. And do you remember the other thing about their feet? Their feet didn't swell. Their feet didn't swell. Science tells us, medicine tells us that one of the first signs of malnutrition is swelling feet. They were not malnourished in the wilderness. The manna was everything. It was all the nutrition. Now, if I could live off Krispy Kreme donuts, I would be there. <laughs> Cup of coffee and Krispy Kreme every day, and I would be happy as a clam and dead in a week. But, but <laughs> not here. This, this is fantastic. Numbers chapter 11, verse 8 says the people would go about. And by the way, it wasn't just the same, same bowl of cereal every morning. You know, it's not like Cocoa Krispies every day for the rest of your life, it never changes. No, they go about and they would gather and grind between millstones and beat it in the mortar and they'd boil it in the pot. They'd make cakes with it. Its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil, Krispy Kreme. <laughs> but there were all kinds of things they could do with it. So it wasn't like just cereal flakes. It was like, like the best, most nutritious flour you can imagine. They could do anything with it. Make all kinds of stuff. We've talked about it before, banana, banana pancakes and manicotti and little manischewitz. I don't know what they did, but they could do anything. Psalm 78, 24 says, He rained down manna upon them to eat, gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. We hate it. God's sweet provision. We loathe this miserable food. The word miserable in Hebrew is kelokel. We hate this kelokel lachem, this miserable, wretched, worthless bread. Kelokel means worthless. Now, what's the difference 
and you're already hearing it. But what's the difference between the contending and complaining when they were thirsty just before this, when Moses struck the rock? Remember, they were contending there. They were upset. They were thirsty. They were hungry. Why did you bring us out here? And there are no figs and pomegranates. Why? Why? And God says, give them water. And, and he graciously gives them water. This time around, now they're saying, we're sick of this worthless bread. And a couple of things. Note in verse 5, it says the people spoke against God and Moses. Before they were just contending with Moses. The frustration was man level. Now they're taking on God. It's never wise. And they're complaining against God. And listen to me. You know when the sin nature is in control, when the very thing a person needs becomes the object of their loathing. When the very thing that God offers, which is health and nutrition, spiritually, emotionally, physically, it's good for you, it's right for you, it's life for you, and I go, I don't want that. I loathe that. It's worthless to me. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And whenever the provision of God is viewed as worthless or wretched, whenever the bread of the word is viewed in this world as something miserable, that's rebellion. We're hearing it more and more as people refer to the Bible as hate speech. This is not hate speech, my friends. It may be convicting. It may call out a lifestyle or a behavior or a sin that you're acting in or living in, but it is not hate speech. It's the truth. It's God saying, if you go down this path, you will starve and you will swell and you will die. But if you eat the food that I give you, you will not swell, and you will be strengthened, and you will be nourished in, in heart, in mind, in body. But what we see here is a rebellion that is heart deep. We hate what you're giving us. We hate your provision. Listen, we have three options with the bread of God. Three options. You can jot these down quickly. Love it, loathe it, or lukewarm it. That's how you can respond to this, this bread. Psalm 119, 140 says, Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. And there had to be some among the people of Israel. I, I don't know who. The, the children, for the most part, were complaining. But there had to be someone who's like, Well, I kind of like manna. <laughs> I like my Krispy Kreme. Don't take away my Krispy you know, there had to be something, but, but the vast majority are just hating on it. Understand that anything short of loving the bread of the word will leave a person starving. And I mean, obviously loathing it, you're not going to eat it. What about those who lukewarm it? Loathing or lukewarm is going to end the same way in death. But remember, the bread of heaven, the word of God, is not just ink on the page, is it? Jesus said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the word made flesh. So the word, the bread, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Jesus proceeded from the Father. Jesus comes, puts on flesh, dwells among us. John chapter 6, I, I just got to read a little of this to you. Just listen to this. He says, I am, John 6, 35, the bread of life. He who comes to me, will not hunger. 
And he who believes in me will never thirst. Down in verse 48 of John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. And that, that was good manna. That was good healthy manna. They still died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread which I also give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that freaked them out. You were doing so well, and then you went full cannibal on us. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we're told in John chapter 6, verse 66, that many of his disciples found that too difficult, and they left. Jesus was making such a graphic point. You feed on me. You, you ingest me, you digest me, my word, my spirit. You, you feed on me, you love me, and you will live. Because I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. You, you need the bread of heaven. Listen, the love of the word and the love of Christ Jesus are inseparable. You don't love the one without the other. That is, you can't say, I love Jesus, but I, man, I just don't like that Bible stuff. Then you really don't love Jesus because every word in this book is his. Every word, except for Job's friends and a couple of idiots here and there, but, but every other word. Because <laughs> the Bible's real, so the Bible gives us what people said and did, and, and some of the stuff people said and did was stupid, but, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is our nutrition. That is our bread. And you don't love Jesus and hate his word. And of course you don't love his word without loving Jesus. So love him or loathe him. Jesus would say, make a choice. But if you lukewarm him, he says, because you were lukewarm, Revelation 3.16, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You might say, well, that's a little harsh. no. Jesus is talking to the church there. That's incredible to me. He's talking to the church. We know those who love him are going to be his followers, and we know those who loathe him are going to be those who reject him. What about the lukewarm? He's talking to the church. So he's talking about those who have come along for the ride, but they're really not into loving Jesus. They're just kind of there. Meh. Take him or leave him. He says, if you're lukewarm, you're going to get spit out. Don't just show up and think that's all you got to do. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. <laughs> Deep theological points are made here. <laughs> Love him or loathe him, but don't lukewarm him. And, and listen, if you think it's harsh that he says, if you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you out. He also said in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Church, Lukewarm in the fellowship? Man, I love you. So don't be meh. Be passionate. Let's get on fire. Verse 6, continuing on, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Talk about harsh, severe punishment. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. It's one of the weirdest things God ever asked anybody to do. 
And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Great. Listen to this. Within days, or at the most months, the people have now complained and contended twice. And again, the first time, God graciously watered them. Apparently, it wasn't so much a, a heart issue. It was just thirsty and weary, and God knew the heart and said, give them water. That's what they need. He provided it. This time, this time, the difference is it is a full-on heart issue. This is a people in rebellion at the heart. And Israel does need, this time, a serious spanking. God knows that. See, when, when God responds or reacts, you need to understand he always responds or reacts based on what he knows is really going on, whether we see it or not. And so this is a severe punishment. By the way, this is the eighth and last rebellion of the Israelites. That's good news, because I'm getting a little tired of their grumpiness. But this is the last time, at least until they get in the land, and there will be you know, future stuff happen. But, but in this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, this is the last rebellion in their 40-year trek, the last insurrection in the wilderness. And so I ask with this last re, uh, rebellion, why has it got to be snakes? <laughs> snakes? <laughs> I was a little kid, probably five years old, being babysat. And I was getting out of bed every five minutes. And finally, the babysitter came in and said, okay, Ricky, you need to stay in bed because I see something that you don't see. What? Invisible snakes are all over your floor. <laughs> when I was a kid growing up, that was called babysitting. Now it's called abuse. <laughs> They're invisible snakes, so don't go out of bed. Like an hour later, I'm weeping in my bed, you know? And the babysitter comes in and goes... Ricky, what is going on? I'm like, i got to go to the bathroom, but there's snakes all over the place. And it was, it was terrible. I'm, st I'm, I'm still affected. <laughs> Old wounds. Snakes. Can you imagine? Fiery serpents. And we don't even know why they're fiery. We don't know if it's because, because their bites were so, like, fiery pain. Can you imagine? That's probably why they're called fiery serpents. I guess it's possible they had little flames coming out of them. That would be weird. But what an intense punishment. And I, I want to talk about this, but I'm going to run out of time. I'm already running out of time. So I'm going to save it for Sunday. We'll come back and look at it, Deb. It's okay. It's going to be all right. <laughs> Read over it. Think it through. But listen to this. Listen to this. This is so important. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Not after. It's not that I got in trouble, God afflicted me, and I said, I'll show you and ran off. No, before I was afflicted, I was wandering off doing my own thing, and then I got afflicted. And now, he says, I keep your word. David wrote that. God will use affliction to redirect a stray heart because he loves you. Let me say that again. God will use affliction in your life to redirect a stray heart because he loves you. So instead of crying out, God, why are you doing this to me? How about, Lord, what are you, what are you showing me? Because he will afflict. The Bible is clear about that. And, and Proverbs 132, the waywardness of the naive will kill them. 
The complacency of fools will destroy them. God loves you too much to let you just go off stupidly and do your own thing. He will afflict to bring you back and put you back in line with his word. Man, we see it with Israel right here. You're going to see it with Israel again and again and again. Ezekiel 39, 28, the Lord says, Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. That's a prophecy that we're seeing happen right now as the Jews are coming back to the land. Not back to faith, not yet. Some are, some are. But you know what you call a Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus right now? Christian. <laughs> the church. They enter that church that is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So if a Jewish person right now gives their life to Christ Jesus, they don't just become a Messianic Jew. They're a Christian. They're in the church. But Israel proper, the nation of Israel, is still not there. They will be. God promises that's going to happen by faith in Jesus Christ, but that's another topic for another time. Now, the rest of the chapter, we'll move through quickly. It is just onward and upward as they're heading on. Verse 10, now the sons of Israel moved out and camped in Obot. Obot means water skins, for those of you who want to keep track of these things. They then journeyed from Obot and camped in Ayabarim, which means ruins of regions beyond. Ayabarim the ruins of the regions beyond. So they went from the water skins now into the ruins. From there they set out and they camped in Wadi Zered or the Wadi of the Willow Brook. By the way, anytime you see a Wadi in the Hebrew scriptures, that's, that's like a riverbed that only flows when the rains pour. So it's dry part of the year and you can just walk right through it. And other parts of the year it's flooded. That's a Wadi. So it's the Wadi of the Willow Brook. Verse 13, from there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, that's a river in Moab, the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib in Sufa, and the wadis of the Arnon and the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar that leans to the border of Moab. Isn't that great? Somebody go look that up in the library card file, the book of the wars of the Lord. I would dig reading that. We have no idea where it is. There's no reference to it anywhere else but in the scriptures. So we know there was a book that talked about the wars of Israel and maybe wars that we don't even But it is a reminder, God has chosen what is in this word. It's not a history book. It is these, Jesus says, who, that testify of me. So it's very specific, the Bible, for speaking the word of God to us. And by the way, if you want to note this, Waheb in Sufa, uh, or Vayahev Sufa, means what he did in the Red Sea. What he did in the Red Sea. So this section of the book of the wars of the Lord is talking about the war at the Red Sea. God warring against Egypt and saving his people and then all the way down. The war, what he did in the Red Sea. <sighs> Quickly. Um, I'm not going to read it right now. I, I suggest to you all reading Psalm 77 when you are in a dark place. When you're crying out to the Lord and you are not getting answer. When you feel like, man, everything I say, the psalmist even says, I cried out to you all night long. My tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. He had dry mouth. I'd be like, get some biotin, dude. He's crying out all night long. 
He's weeping before the Lord. No answer's coming. He finally is like in the place of despairing. And then he says this, I will remember the ways of the Lord. I will meditate on his ways and think about his mighty deeds. I'll think about how he led them through the Red Sea. I'll, I'll go back and look at the, the victories of the Lord. He starts to ponder that, and the, the psalm ends with faith. It doesn't end with God answering him, by the way. It ends with him having faith in the Lord, and that's what you do. You remember what he's done. If you're wondering what he's doing, and you're sitting in silence in the wilderness, remember what he's done. And I guarantee you there's not a one of you here who can't look back and go, wow, he's really blessed me. God did that. God did this. God's taking care of things that, oh, yeah. See, we forget. That's why Thanksgiving is so good for the heart because we forget that stuff. Man, you praise his hand as he led you through the seas in the past. The Red Sea previously. You, you trust he's going to get you to the shore to come because he's gotten you this far. You're here tonight, aren't you? That's God at work. You feed on the bread of the word made flesh. You remember Jesus. Psalm 77, tuck that one away. I'll leave that to you. But before we're done, I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give these to you in bullet order. So write fast. Three ways to continue onward and upward with the Lord. Because that's what's happening now. We're heading on. We're going forward. We're moving the wilderness is slowly moving behind us and we are going forward in the Lord even when the way seems long. Okay, even when those of you like me who have been waiting for the rapture for decades and you're going, Lord, like, yet, like Les said today, yesterday would have been fine. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Lord, would you just come last week because this week was horrible. No, you know, when it seems long, and you know you're at the edge. We know we're at the end of the wilderness, but it keeps stretching out in front of us. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Number one, we sing in the Spirit. Jot that down, because we never talk about this. Verse 16 tells us from there they continued to beer. Beer means, anyone know? Well, well. Yeah, it doesn't mean Michelob. They journeyed on to well, the well, the place of the well. That is the well where the Lord said to Moses, assemble the people that I may give them water. And note this, then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, splish, splash. That they, this is where it came from. <laughs> spring up, O well, sing to it the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. They're singing a song for the water. Woo-hoo, spring up, O well, sing in the spirit. Sing in the Spirit. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water, John 14, 4, or 4, 14, who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water, a beer of water springing up to eternal life. Sing in the Spirit. They're, they're singing of the well, the well of water. They make a song out of it. It's wonderful. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, note this, Paul says, a verse that we skip over so quickly when talking about spiritual gifts and stuff. I will pray with the Spirit. Well, we like to focus on that one. Pray with the Spirit, yeah. And he says, and I will pray with the mind also. That is, I will pray incomprehensibly, but I will also pray reasonably. And then he says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Tonight we sang with the mind. Well, at least as far as I saw. Maybe you were singing in the Spirit. 
To sing in the mind means you're singing words that you know you're proclaiming as we sang the goodness of God. You're asking him to fall afresh on you. You're saying it as well with my soul. Man, I am singing with the mind. I am singing and thinking about the words and they're blessing me even as I'm trying to bless the Lord. But there is also singing in the spirit. You're not singing words. You're not declaring. You're just singing. You're just joy. I, I always know when Cheryl's in a good mood. And I'm not saying that she's necessarily every time singing in the spirit, but she starts to hum, and she doesn't even know it. Sorry to throw you under the bus, honey. I'll hear about it later, I'm sure. She just, there's a happiness there that melody starts to come out. And she'll go by doing, and I'm like, she's in a good mood. It's going to be a good dinner tonight, I can just tell. <laughs> she's just humming, you know. Joyful singing, listen, to sing in the spirit as we journey is I think something maybe that's missing in the church. And we never talk about it. You know what it is? You're in the midst of worship and you just stop singing words. And you just start letting your heart go. And, and don't start rolling in the aisles, you know, because we'll think you're having a heart attack and we'll go get the machine and clear, you know. <laughs> sing. <laughs> just let your heart sing. Find the melody and, 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 and go with it. Sing in the spirit. It's... Joyful, it's incomprehensible, at least you're not thinking about it. You're just, ah, oh, you're just with the Lord. It's a melody of the heart that praises Jesus by the Spirit. Well, how do I do that, Rick? I'm not going to give you a an explanation because that would ruin it. Just do it. Well, I don't know how to do it. Well, just Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, psalms are the psalms of the scriptures, the solo, the, the songs with music that are many of them written right here. And we have modern psalms as well. And singing, speaking to one another with hymns, which in the most part are teaching songs and spiritual songs. What are those? I would suggest to you singing in the Spirit. I would suggest to you that many of the best worship songs we sing probably started with a musician or a songwriter singing in the spirit. Just singing. That's, that's what I do when I'm playing my guitar is I'll just start to sing. It's a little embarrassing. I don't like when people walk in because they're like, what are you singing? I'm like, I have no idea. But you're just singing in the spirit. You're making melody with your heart to the Lord. And I, for some of us, I think this is going to be a vital component to the end of the wilderness here. To learn just to praise God and to sing in the Spirit, not worry about the words, but focus on and meditate on the Lord and sing to Him. Verse 18 continues. And from the wilderness they continued to Matanah. Matanah means gift of Yahweh. That's cool. And from Matanah to Nachaliel, which means torrents of God. I, I, I like that because God does that. You know, there are some times where he just gives you spiritual gifts, and there are other times he is just flowing over you like a torrent. He's the Lord. And from Nahaliel to Bamot, Bamot just means great high place. And from Bamot to the valley, so note this, they're going up and down and up and down. They're into valleys, they're up on mountains. I mean, this is quite a trek that they're, that they're making on this 50-mile round trip. And from Bamot, verse 20, to the valley that is in the land of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. We also know that Pisgah overlooks the land of Israel because that's where Moses is going to go to see the land before he dies. 
And he's going to die up on Mount Pisgah. You know what's really interesting? Deuteronomy 34 tells us he died on Mount Pisgah, but the Lord buried him in the valley of Moab. That's awesome. What a precious, powerful picture of God lifting up the body of Moses and carrying him down to the valley to bury him himself. The only person in all history buried by God. That's tenderness beyond tenderness. In all the ups and downs, and all the highs and lows, singing in the spirit is key. But verse 21 continues, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered his people, all his people, and went out against Israel. By the way, note that pattern because we just saw it in Gaza last week. Israel is not out to go on the attack. But Israel will respond to the attack. And I still really respect that about the Jewish nation to this day. Their fight is 99.9% .9 of the time in defense. They're not, they don't want war. And so the saying goes that if the, if the Palest, Palestinians would lay down their weapons, there would be peace. If Israel lays down their weapons, there would be no more Israel. So they continue, but Sihon doesn't permit it, and so they, he gathers people. He comes out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Yahadz. Yahadz means trodden down and fought against Israel. And guess what? Israel's going to trot him down. Verse 24, then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Yabok. As far as the sons of Ammon, 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 Jordan, Ammonites. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Hatzer, and Hatzer means power. And the only reason Israel went to war against these people is because they attacked Israel. Verse 25, continuing, Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and you take note of that, and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. So the Amorites beat the Moabites. And now the Israelites beat the Amorites and take their land, and Israel wasn't going to, but they came against Israel in full force, and Israel wiped him out. Sing in the spirit. But secondly, note this. As we come to the end of the wilderness, swing the victorious sword. Swing the victorious sword. Do not be afraid to fight the good fight, which means to swing this, to know this word. You are going to need this sword more in the last days of the last days than you have ever needed it before in your life. Mark my words. We need this word. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Let me put it this way. The sword of the word is a scalpel, personally. That is, it is surgically personal. For, for you and for me, this word will cut right to the heart of what's going on. It will deal with our diseases. It will help us see things clearly. It divides out the mess in our lives that we can't comprehend. It's a scalpel. And the sword of the word is also a weapon. It is strikingly assertive. Simply put, you are not going to win theological debates. You're not going to reason people into the gospel, at least for the most part. It's not reason that draws someone to the Lord. It's faith. 
faith. It's, it's trust in him. And by the way, he gives that. When the person listens and listens and pays attention, and perhaps there are reasonable things being said and taught, but the word, the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word is going in. The word is dividing out. And suddenly that person's heart, by the word, is open. God drops faith in. You got a believer. The word of God is, is powerful. See, Paul learned that on Mars Hill. Remember the story, Acts 17, he goes up on Mars Hill in Athens and he starts speaking philosophy and, and all these, using, using their own philosophers to explain God to them. And it doesn't work. So he heads down to Corinth. You can read this in his letter, the first letter to the Corinthian church. And he says, you know, when I came to you, I chose only to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the message. He didn't veer from it and didn't go into the philosophies of man or the education or the theological talk or any of that. He just talked about Jesus. He just went with the word because the word knows how. The word is alive. It cuts through. And that's why Paul says, Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. My answer to anyone who wants to talk all kinds of philosophy and, and stuff is just, look, I don't know that, but I, I, let's talk about the Bible. In fact, let's talk about Jesus. Told our staff earlier today, Gail Irwin has this great quote. I don't know much about evolution, but I know about Jesus. Just keep bringing people back to Jesus and back to the word. Swing the victorious uh, sword and sing in the spirit. Verse 27 continuing, therefore, those who use Proverbs say, and here's a proverb for you. Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. Sihon of the Amorites, okay? For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Hamash. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. It was like the top ten on the hit parade among the Amorites. You know, Sihon, Sihon, he's our guy. And then along comes Israel. I love this in verse 30. They add their own verse. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dabon. Now we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches Mediva. Now you don't have to know where any of these places are. All you got to know is this Amorite victory song is now taken by the Israelites and, Mo and Moses, and they add a final verse. It's great. The Amorite king Sihon took out Moab. We took out the Amorite king Sihon. That's the song. That's the proverb. It's, it's marvelous. And the Israelites tweak it to do this. You know what it's like? It's like how on Independence Day, 1832, a song was taken and rewritten. The song was written by a guy named Samuel Smith who took God Save the King and turned it into My Country Tis of Thee. <laughs> I love that. Now, if I was British, I might not. But rather than God Save Our Gracious King, it's my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. And they sang it in Boston at Parkside or, or, or Park Street Church uh, for the first time in 1832 on July 4th. So this is the idea. The Moabites would have heard this song. Remember, the Moabites were defeated by the Amorites. Here come the Israelites, and they defeat the Amorites. The next chapter, we're going to find the Moabites shaken in their sandals scared to death because these people <laughs> they took out the enemy that took us out remember we come to the end of the wilderness 
and we're swinging the sword of truth and we're singing in the spirit. Remember, ours is a victory march. We are not marching into oblivion. We're marching into the kingdom. We, we are marching in a war that is won. Now, the devil would try to make you think otherwise. He's going to try to depress you. He's going to try to make the way seem long. He's going to try and make you feel like it's all falling apart around you. Look at our country. Look at our culture. Look at the immorality of the world. Look at Netflix. It's horrible. Lord, what's happening here? You're marching on to Zion. That's what's happening here. You are marching to victory. So sing in the spirit and swing the victorious sword. And finally, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent, sent to spy out Hatzer. And they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. But then, verse 33, they turned. The last point here, they went up by way of Bashan and Og. I like that name, Og. Sounds like a Muppet. Any? Any? Og. Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Adrei. Adrei means good pasture. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him. I've given him into your hand and all his people in his land. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. And you'll hear those two names over and over as signs of the victory of Israel coming out of the wilderness, Og and Sihon, Sihon and Og. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left him and they possessed his land. Sing in the spirit, swing the victorious sword. But listen, listen. Og was a big dude, huge as a matter of fact. We find this out. He was offspring of giants. This very, very large man was so big, listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. The Rephaim, Rephaim was a, 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 a generation of big guys. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. That was unusual. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits. Its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. What does that mean? His bed was 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide for one guy. That was Og's bed. Man, there's so much we could do with this guy. Og the hog. I mean, whatever. You just <laughs> can make up all kinds of stuff. Apparently, most people, I've heard this, have a, a sleep number setting of 30 to 60. Og's must have been like, what, 250? <laughs> on his bed? Israel took him down. Israel took him on, took him down, Og and the Amorites, because the Lord said, and note this, verse 34, do not fear him. I didn't get the exact number, but it's well over 100 times in the Bible where the Lord says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Over and over, the Lord is saying, do not fear. So what do we do? We sing in the spirit. We swing the victorious sword. And finally, we submit to the fear of the Lord. Submit to the fear of the Lord. This is where we are, into the wilderness, looking for the promised land. Singing in the spirit with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, and, and, and swinging the victorious sword of his word, knowing this word, getting into this word. I had a, a sister come to me on Sunday, and I was so thankful for this. And she said, where do I start? Because I've gone to church all my life, but the Bible is overwhelming. And I'm like, I get that. You walk into a library, there's 66 books on the wall. Where, where do you start? That's this. So I said, start with Mark. 
Grab the Gospel of Mark. It's straight through. It's quick. It's easy. It's action. And ask yourself, what does it tell you about Jesus? And then go on to maybe, maybe do John. And, and we talked about some other possible tools and ways you can approach the Bible, but ultimately, when you go back to Genesis and start working your way through, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. It is this that testifies about me. And so we, we need this sword. Don't, don't be intimidated by the Bible. Get into it. Start in a simple spot, like one of the four Gospels, and then get to know Jesus, and then start looking for Jesus all over this book. We're going to need it. Sing in the Spirit, swing the victorious sword, and finally submit to the fear of the Lord. Job wrote, and to man, God said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. David said, Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Solomon understood, Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. And his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. The fear of the Lord. And how cool that Isaiah prophesied about Messiah, Jesus, by saying, Isaiah 11, verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus feared the Lord? Absolutely. It was his delight. It's that deepest, utmost respect and awe that God is everything, that his word matters. Jesus said, I don't do anything I don't see the Father doing. If I speak to you, it's, it's, it's the Father. He went so far as to say, I and the Father are one. Jesus, equal with the Father. But delighted in the fear of the Lord. And Isaiah said this of Jesus also, Isaiah 33, 6, he will be the stability of your times. Isaiah 33, 6, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And note this, and the fear of the Lord will be his treasure. Interesting. What, what is the treasure of Jesus? It's the fear of the Lord. You want to share in the treasure? You share in the fear of the Lord. You submit to the fear of the Lord. I, I still say we could use more of the fear of the Lord in the church today. If we fear the Lord just a little more, we would grow strong. And we would have peace. And we'd have confidence from which to fight. And last thing here, we see it. We see the fear of the Lord and how it works in a church. Acts 9.31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee... And Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on, going on, we might say onward and upward, in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church continued to increase. You know why the church doesn't seem to be increasing in America today? No fear of the Lord. God's our buddy. He's the man upstairs. He's the dude. No, he's God. And we need the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord in the first century church caused increase. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.11 Paul said, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You're not going to persuade someone to follow Jesus because he's a cool bud. You know? You will persuade them because he's awesome. Because he's God. The fear of the Lord. Submit to it. It's wisdom. It's clean. It's a delight. It's our confidence, our treasure, our persuasion. Don't diminish it it's the greatest fear that the Israelites would ever learn in the wilderness that's why they were there for so long now again the wilderness is beginning to fade their rebellions are behind them at least for now and the promised land is before them the chosen people 
are doing what we're doing right now, let me repeat it to you. We are not just hanging on for dear life. We are marching on to Zion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word tonight and the journey that we've already taken. So many things. And I just pray that you will help us now, Lord, to process and meditate on and think about the things that are important to you. Father, the things that matter that, that we need to recall. Oh, Lord, I, I just pray your blessing on your people tonight. And may we consider in the fear of the Lord all the goodness of God that you have shown us throughout our lives. And Lord, we look forward. We can't wait. We're on the move. Onward and upward, Lord, to the kingdom. And so with that in mind, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.